West Side Unscripted, the podcast where the pastors loosen their ties, throw away their notes, and answer questions about all things theology and culture. I am Josh Bartels, a deacon here at Westside, and I'm here as usual with Pastor Peter Montoro, our preaching pastor uh, at the church. And as is his custom, he's brought us a book, and it's a, it looks like a little bit of a hefty one. So what do, you, what do you got for us today? I've got The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power uh, by Soshana Zuboff. And this has been something I've been reading for a while and finally finished it a couple weeks ago. So I wanted to read two quotes and sort of talk through uh, some of what the implications of that. Uh, so the first is, what is surveillance capitalism? So she says, surveillance capitalism unilaterally claims human experience as free raw material for translation into behavioral data. Automated machine processes, she goes on to say, not only know our behavior, but also shape our behavior at scale. With this reorientation from knowledge to power, it's no longer enough to automate information flows about us. The goal now is to automate us. In this phase of surveillance capitalism's evolution, the means of production are subordinated to an increasingly complex and comprehensive means of behavioral modification. In this way, surveillance capitalism uh, bursts a new species of power uh, that I will call uh, instrumentarianism. Instrumentarian power knows and shapes human behavior towards others' ends. Instead of armaments and armies, it works its will through the automated medium of an increasingly ubiquitous computational architecture of quote-unquote smart network devices, things, and spaces. That's another quote later on in the book uh, from another writer who is a former Facebook product manager who says this, the fundamental purpose of most people at Facebook working on data is to influence and alter people's moods and behavior. They are doing it all the time to make you like stories more, to click on more ads, and to spend more time on the site, and such forth and so on. Uh, and so really what she's getting at at very great length, the book could have been much shorter than it was, uh, is we often think of um, sort of online tracking merely as a matter of privacy. Um, but what she's pushing for, and, and, and argues quite effectively, I think, for, is the fact that it's unsupervised, uncontrolled, and continuous psychological experimentation to change, um, you know, what people, change people's behavior. So you think about something like Pokemon Go is really the ultimate illustration of this, you know, where they're directing people towards location, supposedly so they can score points in the game. But the whole game is designed as a shell game to direct millions of people to go to the places that benefit others um, that they wouldn't otherwise have gone to. Uh, and there's a lot of things like that where things are marketed with one label, but the actual, um, the actual customer is someone else who you don't know. You don't know who's paying for your behavior to be modified. Uh, and it, you know, it used to be said, if something's free, you gotta look who's paying for it. But it isn't just stuff that's free, it's even um, stuff that you're paying for that others are making, you know, that you don't, your you, information about you is being sold, but it's not just that information about you is being sold. The products themselves are being continuously fine-tuned to fine-tune you. Uh, and manipulate you into behaving in ways that fit within these algorithms that generate profitability. And so, so, the, so the motivation behind people doing this is is money, is what you're saying. I mean, if the name, if the title of the book is Surveillance Capitalism, obviously it's, it has to do with 
these people who are manipulating things are just trying to get the maximum profit for themselves? Is that what? The- That's what she argues for, but I would, this isn't her perspective. She doesn't necessarily argue for this at all. Um, but where I would say is one of the things that we're seeing even more recently, even after that book came out, is you know what's been called woke capitalism, where these companies that have you know, pursued all these things for financial ends are now have other ends that are more important to them than financial ends. Right. Um, and so they have ideological ends that yeah. now, now you have this massive power that's, you know, completely unsupervised that's now being turned to ideological ends. And it's, yeah. it's power that, you know, not even the Soviets had, you know, they had more coercive power. Right. <laughs> but the power to be continuously monitoring and nudging people's behavior uh, is. Yeah. It's interesting. Like recently, there's the news story regarding uh, Disney and the Don't Say Gay bill mm-hmm. and their response to it. And what's what seems to be fascinating is that financially, it doesn't seem to be a profitable move to take a stand against the bill in terms of their customer base, yet they're willing to take a financial hit for an ideological gain. Whereas in the past, it would kind of be more, or mm-hmm. at least seemed like the goal was financial profit. And so it's interesting how there is that turn that's happening a little bit in terms of the, the ideologies are becoming more. Yeah. And driving what's driving the motivating the, well, it's, it's so many of these companies, you have the 30 somethings, you know, that started these tech companies and they're afraid of the 20 somethings that are their junior employees because of the power that they wield via the products that in some cases they themselves created. Yeah. Right. You know, it's like a, it's like a Frankenstein, <laughs> you know, you create the monster, but you can't always control it once you've created it. Yeah, no, not at all. The, so uh, today the topic is not a question. It's something that I wanted to bring up that you and I had been talking about at one point uh, in the office. You had brought this uh, idea up and I wanted, I wanted to talk about it. And it's basically, as I understand it, that the names that we are given in the scriptures of the characters that show up are in themselves do something to help uh, prove the reliability of the scriptures. And so I just thought it'd be an interesting topic for us to talk about. So how, how do the names that we find in the scriptures actually help us un- help uh, bolster our trust in the gospels themselves? Yeah. So basically uh, names are distinctive to particular times and places. So, you know, you could, you can get a list of the most popular boys names in, you know, America. Right. And you could get a list of the most popular boys' names in some other country, some other place, even of Americans living in other places. Mm -hmm. And those those lists are going to be different. And even if you times too. I think the Social Security Administration has like listings like that that you can go back in time and check what the the, very different. You know, the the most popular names in, you know, at the time of the revolution, you know, are not the most popular names now. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so those those shift. And and one of the interesting things about that is it's really hard to manipulate. Because you don't actually necessarily, like, I have no idea unless I look at, look up one of those lists. You know, I know what my friends' names are, but I don't know what globally the most common names are. I have no idea what the most common names are in America. Right, yeah. Absence of someone conducting a survey, which, you know, no one in the first century is conducting surveys like that. So this is something that they could not have just looked up in a reference book and found out. Yeah, right. Um, and one of the interesting things is, so this pattern, you know, that we see, like, we we you know, that what are the names that are most common right now? What are the names that are most common, you know, a hundred years ago or whatever in different places, different times? We know that that changes. And we also know that absent that kind of formal survey data, it's not something you can guess based on your circle of acquaintance. If you were to make your own list, it would almost certainly be wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a data that's kind of hard to fake. Uh, and one of the things that we have from the ancient world is we have names, a lot of different names, um, from tombstones, from wills, from legal contracts, from all the documents that have been uncovered. And uh, relevant uh, names, I've got a book here that has a little bit of the data. Um, so uh, for Jews in Palestine, for instance, uh, he found 2,953 occurrences of 521 names um, comprising 2,625 occurrences of 447 different male names and 328 occurrences of 74 different female names. So we've got a database of names from Palestine uh, in the period roughly. Uh, so the, the, the boundaries of the data are from 330 BC to 8200. Uh, but narrow, most of those come from 50 BC to AD 135, the time the Gospels purport to be from. Um, and so some of those names, of course, on that list are from the Gospels, but they're also from, you know, like I said, tombstones, burial stuff, all sorts of data sources. You've got um, lots and lots of names. And you have patterns of what the most frequent names are. And what's really interesting is you have the names that are the most common in Jewish Palestine, and you have the names that are most common among Jews uh, in Egypt. Like a Jewish population in Egypt has a completely different Hmm. set of most popular names or the Jewish population in Rome, we have names of them. And so even location to location in the same general time period, there's a geographical specificity to the most popular names. Um, And so what's striking is that the most popular Jewish names in first century Palestine um, are the people match up very well you know, it's not going to be perfect. This isn't, you know, you'd have to have a massive data sample for it to, you know, the New Testament would have to be much, much longer for it to match up perfectly, you know, but uh, the most common Jewish name is Simon. Okay. Uh, And there's eight New Testament individuals named Simon. This is also like the most common name in the New Testament. You know, Joseph is a common, you know, one of this is the second most common. And Joseph is like the second most common name in the New Testament in terms of different individuals uh, that have that same name. Yeah. And... Uh, so there's another way of looking at it. There's another data chart here. You have men with the two most popular names, um, Simon or Joseph. So 15% of the names in the, in the broad data sample have the two most common names and 18% in the gospels and acts have the two most common names. Uh, men with one of the nine most popular names, 41% among the data sample, 40% in the gospels. Hmm. So there's like a really close uh, parallel, uh, with that. But it's not, and but if you, you know, again, if you compare that to um, Egypt, the rankings of them, so the, you know, first most, uh, the second most popular name uh, in uh, Egypt is Sabatius or Sabateus, if however you say that. Um, and that is number 68 in Palestine. So there's very significant, you know, shifts. Um, you know, so here are the most popular names uh, in Egypt, Eleazar, so that's, Pretty close. It's number one in Egypt, number three in Palestine. Uh, Sabadius, Joseph, popular in both. But then you've got uh, Dosithius, Pappas, Ptolemaeus, uh, and Samuel, all of whom are relatively low-ranking names. Uh, so Ptolemaeus, very popular in Egypt, number six. Uh, it's number 50 uh, in Palestine. Okay. So like, yeah. th- th- this is actually like a relevant, like falsifiable data set. Um, and it's not just you know, the statistics, it's also those names that are known to have been the most common. It'll be Simon, son of Jonas. So you have these disambiguifiers in the text. And so if you look at the, you know, so Simon Peter, Simon the Zealot, Simon the Leper, Simon the Cyrenian. So names that are known to have been more common or like Mary, 
you have Mary who, you know, mm. in a way that names mm. that are known to have been less common, you won't have that. Um, I see, yeah. And so those are patterns that, um, you know, of course, none of that uh, proves, you know, everything in the gospels. Right. But it, so oh, what, yeah. So what would then, because that, that's, that's exactly in one sense, when you lay out the data like that, it's like, oh yeah, that's exactly what we should expect if everything did happen. But what kind of objections does this data answer that can be helpful apologetically just as someone, you know, yeah, well, so, so, comes right. to the scriptures. So really what, you know, one of the things that you'll often hear from people is, well, there's all these gospels and the church just arbitrarily chose these four, maybe at, you know, the council of Constantinople, uh, I, uh, uh, Nicaea or something like that. And this data is really helpful in answering that because there are all kinds of apocryphal documents, but what's striking is how different they are from the canonical gospels. Mm. So you apply this same, you know, so you look at the canonical gospels, the ones that we have, and you look at the gospel of Thomas, gospel of so-called gospel of Thomas, Judas, all these other, you know, purported gospels that National Geographic loves to talk about around mm -hmm. Easter time every year. Yeah. Um, what's striking is the gospels have lots of geographical data, where we can check it, it's accurate. And there's data we can't check, you know, which is really important because that's showing a knowledge of, you know, geography they couldn't have gotten from books, right? So there's all this geographical data, the apocryphal gospels that are written afterwards, very sparse on geographical points. <laughs> they don't mention a lot of locations. They don't mention a lot of names and the names they do, they do mention, you know, don't fit this sort of rich pattern. So it's the sort of pattern you'd expect if it was written by someone who is from the time and place they purported to be from, mm -hmm. right? So it's not just someone sitting up and making a story. So, I mean, that doesn't prove that Jesus is who they said, said that he was, right. but yeah. it does prove that they're the sort of people they purport to be. Or yeah. proof might be a strong word, but it gives strong evidence that they're the sort of people they purport to be, the sort of, you know, that they have the sort of contextual information you'd expect from an eyewitness, whereas all of these other purported sources about Jesus that give these different views of Jesus have all the marks of being written at a time and place very distant from, okay. from the events they purport to describe. And so if you're comparing, you know, what are the sources about Jesus we should trust, there's no competition that there's just, it's just not a, you know, that doesn't go on to necessarily prove that the gospels are reliable, sure. uh, but it proves that they're a more trustworthy source than anything else. So if you want to learn about Jesus, the canonical gospels are the right ones to go to. Mm -hmm. um, so then we can say that if the, if an apocryphal book has those names, th the names are going to show that those books were written either later than the time of Christ or in a place that's distant from him. Right. That's the kind of evidence that, or the, the kind of information we're getting from this kind of data. Yeah. They're, they're dependent on the gospels almost exclusive, you know, they're dependent on one or more of the canonical gospels and they, they're not containing additional information you couldn't have got from reading the gospels. Mm -hmm. And even the information they do have is they just, it's a different type of writing. You know, it's the sort of thing that could have been made up versus the sort of thing, you know, like anybody could make up a, a story about never, never land. You know, but if you were to make a story ab up about, you know, Bremerton in the 21st century, you know, there'd be specific details about mm -hmm. <laughs> life in Bremerton, the yeah. names in Bremerton, um, you know, that would be difficult to fake had you not actually been there or done a type of historical research that just really wasn't feasible to do in the ancient world. Yeah. So, I mean, now we could, yeah, we, could, we, could we could figure that out. Right. But those sources just simply weren't extant in, mm -hmm. you know, in the first and second centuries. Right. Um, as is evidenced by, you know, the fact that things that are far distant from, you know, eyewitness evidence just don't, don't mm -hmm. have that kind of data. Yeah. So, 
you know, we can see what, what it looks like when they don't know what they're talking about <laughs> and they make all kinds of crazy stuff up. Yeah. That's another thing. So I want to go to another thing you said real quick. You also said that, uh, the fact that there is stuff that we cannot check is helpful to verifying that this is real. Do you mean by that, that, you know, there's like local lore or, uh, local customs that are just beyond the recorded history that, well, I, we so I think, expect, so, so I, I guess what I meant by that is if you have an ancient source for all the data, mm -hmm. then someone could have got that data from those ancient sources. Right. So if you have like, oh, I see what you're saying, you yeah. know, so if you have, you know, so if a student turns in a paper and everything in their paper is from Wikipedia, mm -hmm. then the, the most logical conclusion is they got everything from Wikipedia. Right. Yeah. If they have a bunch of specific information that couldn't have, you know, that is implausible to have been made up and also is not found in Wikipedia, then they have some source other than Wikipedia that they likely have consulted. Mm -hmm. You know, supposing they didn't footnote, you know, they didn't have footnotes right. or whatever, you know, just that if everything is in co very commonly available sources, then someone wouldn't have had to have any firsthand knowledge of that, you know, or someone, you know, this is something in uh, criminal yeah, forensics, you know, if someone is giving testimony as a witness and they could have gotten everything they have to say from the newspaper reports, <laughs> then <laughs> that's a way of categorizing them as a time waster. <laughs> That yeah. they just want, you know, to be notorious or whatever. Uh, and so often, you know, so I don't actually know. I'm not a, <laughs> this is something, <laughs> full disclosure where I got this information. <laughs> this is something you see in crime shows. So maybe actual forensics are different, but it makes sure. logical yeah, sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Um, you know, that if the police withhold, that's the reason they want to withhold certain information. Um, right. Yeah. Because then, you know, if someone knows that information, then they actually know something. Mm -hmm. uh, but the info, you know, they don't, that's why they don't want everything going out in the newspapers. Um, you know, so mystery yeah. stories, that's a common, common sort of thread. You're trying to find out who knows what, mm -hmm. uh, and it's just a basic principle of logic as well, uh, that, you know, also, yeah. So that's, that's cool. and one of the interesting, so one of the things is that, so this book, uh, can we trust the gospels? Pete Williams wrote it. Uh, he was summarizing the data that is in the gospel and the eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, which is a, a big academic book that's on my reading list at some point. Um, but one of the things they're doing at Tyndale houses, they have this really big project to compile a similar database for the old Testament, which is a massively larger project because you're dealing with dozens of different languages over thousands of years. And, um, you know, you've got the Babylonian archives, you've got these massive archives of, you know, cuneiform tablets tend to stick, you know, if you can find them, they last longer than, you know, uh, papyrus. <laughs> so you've just got a lot, a lot of data. Uh, so I have a friend who's working on that project and he's, uh, I think he's focusing on the Eucharitic stuff. I forget, maybe Eucharitic and Akkadian. Um, so I know a couple of people who are working. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I know one person who's working on the Akkadian. And I think the other person's working on the Eucharitic stuff. So that project looks like just compiling all the names that we have in the Old Testament and all the names that are found in antiquity? Yeah. Right. Okay. In, in, in the places relevant to the Old Testament. Okay. So I, uh, my understanding of it, it's not something I've been, this is not one I've been personally involved in, uh, but they're just basically compiling a massive database of names that we can locate in time and space. Hmm. And then I think the plan is to match, you know, the Old Testament names against that. Yeah, that's uh, cool. And so it's that's a quite big a project. It's a multi-year, maybe multi-decade. It's a big, yeah. <laughs> it's a big project. That's huge. Um, so 
Cool. Well, this has been very fascinating to me. I hope it's been fascinating to uh, all of you listening. And if you want to find that book, Can We Trust the Gospels? I believe we have that in the bookstore. We do. And so you can go pick that up. And it's got a lot more information than what Pastor Peter has just referenced here. But uh, really just... uh, It's a great book. We did it as a book of the month uh, a few years ago. So if you haven't read it, I'd really recommend it. It's a good... It'd be a good book to give to your skeptical friend, too. It's really written in a really accessible way. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike a lot of accessible books, it's also written in an accurate way. Yeah, good. <laughs> so it's a good, good balance. Excellent. Well, this has been another episode of West Side Unscripted. Thank you uh, so much for listening in to us today. We really appreciate uh, your participation, both by listening and by sending in questions. And so if you have, I have questions. I one more thing to add. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. So send in questions to Josh, but we're also going to have a live Q&A on Sunday. This is true. So if you have questions for that, so you can be thinking of both, you know, yeah, send a question them. to Josh and keep a question for the, the service there, there you as go. well. Yeah, bring them there. And uh, we'll, we'll uh, have that on Sunday night, this Sunday night. So be there and bring your questions. Thanks again for listening. And uh, we will be here next week. And we hope you'll join us for another talk about theology and culture here on Westside Unscripted. Unscripted.